0: As we continue reading the Gospels, today we'll be looking at the Eve of the Crucifixion. They're still in Jerusalem, and as I mentioned, they've just had the Passover feast on the Eve of the Crucifixion. be looking at passages in Matthew chapter 26, verses 31 to 35, Mark chapter 14, verses 27 to 31, Luke chapter 22, verses 31 to 38, and John chapter 13, beginning with verse 36, down through chapter 14 verse 31 in the first section of scripture that we will be reading from Matthew 26:31 to 35 Mark 14:27 to 31 Luke 22:31 to 34 and John 13:36 to 38 we see the denial foretold verse 31 of Matthew chapter 26 then saith jesus unto them all ye shall be offended because of me this night for it is written I will smite the shepherd, and the sheep of the flock shall be scattered abroad. But after I am risen again, I will go before you into Galilee. Peter answered and said unto him, Though all men shall be offended because of thee, yet will I never be offended. Jesus said unto him, Verily I say unto thee, That this night before the cock crow thou shalt deny me thrice. Peter said unto him, Though I should die with thee, yet will I not deny thee, likewise also said all of the disciples. Now over to Mark chapter 14, verse 27. And Jesus saith unto them, All ye shall be offended because of me this night. For it is written, I will smite the shepherd, and the sheep shall be scattered. But after that I am risen, I will go before you into Galilee. But Peter said unto him, Although all shall be offended, yet will not I. And Jesus saith unto him, Verily I say unto thee, at this day, even in this night, before the cock crow twice, thou shalt deny me thrice. But he spake the more vehemently If I should die with thee, I will not deny thee in any wise. Likewise also said they all. Now, Luke's account in Luke chapter 22, beginning with verse 31. And the Lord said, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan hath desired to have you, that he may sift you as wheat. But I have prayed for thee that thy faith fail not, and when thou art converted, strengthen thy brethren. And he said unto him, Lord, I am ready to go with thee, both into prison and to death. And he said, I tell thee, Peter, the cock shall not crow this day, before that thou shalt thrice deny that thou knowest me. Now over to John chapter 13, beginning with verse 36. Simon Peter said unto him, Lord, whither goest thou? Jesus answered him, Whether I go, thou canst not follow me now, but thou shalt follow me afterwards. Peter said unto him, Lord, why cannot I follow thee now? I will lay down my life for thy sake. Jesus answered him, Wilt thou lay down thy life for my sake? Verily, verily, I say unto thee, The cock shall not crow till thou hast denied me thrice. Now, this is a very sobering passage of Scripture, all four counts all taking place the night leading up to the crucifixion. Matthew and Mark point out that Jesus' words regarding the denial were directed toward all the disciples, but Luke and John just mention Peter's anticipated denial. Jesus quotes the prophet Zechariah, that's Zechariah chapter 13, verse 7, there to indicate that even the denial of the Messiah by his own followers was a fact of Old Testament prophecy. However, Peter is very adamant that, though all the other disciples may deny Jesus, he absolutely, positively would not, all the way to the death if necessary. Jesus assures Peter that even he will deny him. However, in Luke twenty-two thirty-two, Jesus expresses confidence in Peter after the denial when he says, "...but I have prayed for thee, that thy faith fail not, and when thou art converted, strengthen thy brethren." The word converted there is a translation of the Greek word epistrephal, which means to return to a point or area where one has been before. In other words, while Peter will deny Jesus, he will subsequently return to his place among the disciples where he will strengthen and feed them. Now, it should be noted that ultimately all Jesus' disciples would, in fact, deny him. As it happens, Peter's denial is more prominently displayed in the gospel accounts. But actually, no one stood with Jesus at his trial. As a matter of fact, Mark chapter 14, verse 50, which we'll look at later on, says, And they all forsook him and fled. Now, we have an issue with some swords in Luke chapter 22, beginning with verse 35, down through verse 38. And he said unto them, When I sent you without purse and script and shoes, lacked ye anything? And they said nothing. Then said he unto them, But now he that hath a purse, let him take it, and likewise his script. And he that hath no sword, let him sell his garment and buy one. For I say unto you that this that is written must yet be accomplished in me. And he was reckoned among the transgressors, for the things concerning me have an end." And they said, Lord, behold, here are two swords. And he said unto them, It is enough. Jesus refers to the sending of the 70 disciples to preach the kingdom message back in Luke chapter 10. The purse and script there are obvious references to Luke chapter 10, verse 4, where back then he said, Carry neither purse, nor script, nor shoes, and salute no man by the way. It would appear that Jesus is teaching a lesson about the change discipleship was about to undergo but they took him literally. I think the lesson intended by Jesus to be understood by his disciples here was one of contrast. Here's that contrast. The 70 return with their mission complete without notable resistance. From this time forward, the resistance will be intense, right down to the crucifixion. Peter obviously misses the, the object lesson here and. He strapped on one of those swords, which he used at the capture of Jesus in John chapter 18, verse 10, where there we see, Then Simon Peter, having a sword, drew it and smote the high priest's servant and cut off his right ear. That servant's name was Malchus. Isaiah chapter 53 prophesies the crucifixion of the Messiah. Jesus quotes here from Isaiah chapter 53, verse 12, here in verse 37, where it says, and he was reckoned among the transgressors. Jesus is clearly in this passage preparing his disciples for his capture and his crucifixion. With that being said, it's still admittedly difficult to account for every aspect of this conversation between Jesus and his disciples, especially the it is enough comment of verse 38. Some have suggested that these words were intended by Jesus to put a stop to a conversation which the disciples didn't seem to be properly comprehending. Others, although, have suggested that the phrase was intended to indicate that two swords are sufficient. Well, sufficient for what, you might ask? Well, it's felt by some that the reckoned among the transgressors, quote of Isaiah 53:12 was fulfilled in that two swords were on hand in the garden at the capture of Jesus, thus making them transgressors. Well, conjecture is all we really have on this issue. We don't know exactly what was intended by that comment. Now we go to John chapter 14, where Jesus is preparing his disciples for the crucifixion. Jesus had talked a great deal about the kingdom on earth throughout his ministry. That kingdom is the one prophesied by the Old Testament prophets for telling the reign of the Messiah over the entire earth. Jesus is that Messiah. But in accordance with the prophets, the Messiah must first suffer and be crucified. The discourse of Jesus in chapters 14 to 16 takes place after the Passover supper, the night before Jesus is crucified. Jesus goes into great detail here, giving perspective to the disciples on exactly what to expect. We begin chapter 14 by dividing out verses 1 through 6, the way, the truth, and the life, verse 1. Let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you unto myself, that where I am, there you may be also. And whither I go ye know, and the way ye know. Thomas saith unto him, Lord, we know not whither thou goest, and how can we know the way? Jesus saith unto him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. Now, it's obvious at the beginning of John 14 that the disciples are on a different thinking track than Jesus. Their questions and comments indicate that they're thinking about an earthly kingdom while Jesus is now talking about a spiritual kingdom. As Jesus had preached to the Jewish masses for the three-plus years previous to this time, he had talked frequently about the earthly messianic kingdom— But that's not what he's talking about here. The emphasis here is changed so as to equip them for the immediate future. Jesus begins by talking about the house prepared for them in heaven in verses 1 through 4. Verse 5 demonstrates that this talk of heaven rather than an earthly rule was kind of confusing to Thomas. He indicates that he doesn't quite understand when he says this, "'Lord, we know not whither thou goest, and how can we know the way?' Verse 6 is your apologetics verse for proclaiming your position in Christ. Here's what it says. Jesus saith unto him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. There's no need to argue or explain that verse. Just quote John 14, 6 as is. Now, someone might reply to you, Well, don't you think that all religions are about the same if you're sincere? Don't argue with that. Just once again, quote John 14:6. It really explains itself, and these are the very words of Jesus. Now, someone may come back to you with a question like this. Do you mean to tell me that everyone who doesn't believe in Jesus is going to hell? Well, again, don't argue with them. Just quote, once again, John 14:6. You must admit, that verse really says it all. It doesn't need additional explanation or additional comment. Incidentally, the Greek word for mansion in verse 2 is monae. It's only used twice in the New Testament here in verse 23, where it's translated abode. Quite literally, it means a place to stay. So, will our place to stay in heaven be mansion style nice? Hey, need you ask? You also notice in verse 3, Jesus indicates that he, at first, must go and prepare a place for his disciples, after which he will come and receive them. This is undoubtedly a reference to the rapture of the church discussed by Paul in 1 Thessalonians 4, verses 13-18, and also in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 51-58. through 58. The second coming of Jesus takes place later, when Jesus actually comes back to earth to establish the earthly rule about which Jesus had been speaking in earlier discourses. See the comments on Matthew chapters 24 and 25 for more details there. Now John 14, verses 7 through 14. If ye had known me, ye should have known my Father also, and from henceforth ye know him, and have seen him. Philip saith unto him, Lord, show us the Father, and it sufficeth us. Verily, verily, I say unto you, He that believeth on me the works that I do, shall he do also. And greater works than these shall he do, because I go unto my Father. And whatsoever he shall ask in my name, that will I do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If ye shall ask anything in my name, I will do it. Now, I find Philip's request to verse 8 indicative of the state of mind of the disciples, all the disciples at this time. Keep in mind they've been thinking in terms of an earthly kingdom to be established right away. Now they're being told that instead they'll be introduced to the Father, God. Jesus mildly rebukes Philip for not already understanding the mission at hand and for not recognizing that when you see Jesus, you see God the Father. He then clearly explains that He is God. Verses 12-14 through have often been abused by well-meaning believers who want to get things moving. Let's not beat around the bush on this one. They had seen Jesus perform some awesome miracles during the previous three years plus ministry. So when Jesus says in verse 12, He that believeth on me, the works that I do, shall he do also, and greater works than these shall he do, because I go unto my Father, what do you think Jesus intends to convey here? I don't think we need to try to explain away this statement. We simply need to add the formula found in verses 13 and 14 And that formula is the in my name formula. It's common to append the words in my name to the end of, well, all of our prayers. That appendage doesn't make it so necessarily. In my name absolutely means this, under the authorization of. Here's an example. When I was in college, I worked full time in a bank and eventually became a lending officer and assistant branch manager. As such, I was authorized by the bank under very strict circumstances to sign cashier's checks, sometimes very large cashier's checks. Now keep in mind, I had no authority whatsoever to indiscriminately write checks only when the bank's criteria for doing so was met, and that means that I was authorized by the bank to do so. Well that's exactly what in my name means. I'm convinced that God still performs miracles today through believers who are in tune with what God is authorizing in His name. Now, here's the problem today. Many have been taught that there's something magical about the words in Jesus' name. Armed with that misunderstanding, they claim frivolous things in Jesus' name, only to be disappointed at their success track record or lack thereof. First John chapter 5, verses 14 and 15, that, those two verses provide a valuable insight into this issue of prayer, where John writes this, And this is the confidence that we have in Him, that if we ask anything according to His will, He heareth us. And if we know that He heareth whatsoever we ask, then we know we have the petitions that we desire of Him. Praying in Jesus' name literally means praying according to His will. When we pray according to His will, He'll always answer that prayer. Of course, the key here is to pray according to His will. So, how do you know what God's will is? How do you know one's doing that? Well, the key to praying according to God's will, it's found in James chapter 1, verse 5. Here's what that verse says. If any of you lack wisdom, let him ask of God, that giveth to all men liberally, and upbraideth not, and it shall be given him. You can pray with absolute assurance that you are praying according to His will when you first pray for wisdom. Wisdom in this context is knowing the will of God. After I've prayed for wisdom, I will be impressed by the Holy Spirit with the knowledge of the will of God, and that's what wisdom is. Then I can pray specifically and with confidence in exactly the way God has shown me to pray. Only then can I legitimately pray in Jesus name In John chapter 14 verses 15 to 31 we see that helps on the way verse 15 If ye love me keep my commandments and I will pray the Father and he shall give you another comforter that he may abide with you forever even the spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it seeth him not neither knoweth him but ye know him for he dwelleth with you and shall be in you I will not leave you comfortless I will come to you Yet a little while, and the world seeth me no more. But ye see me, because I live, ye shall live also. At that day ye shall know that I am in the Father, and and ye in me, and I in you. He that hath my commandments, and keepeth them, he it is that loveth me. And he that loveth me shall be loved of my Father, and I will love him, and will manifest myself to him. Judah saith unto him, not Iscariot, Lord, how is it that thou wilt manifest thyself unto us, and not unto the world. Jesus answered and said unto him, If a man love me, he will keep my words, and my Father will love him, and we will come unto him, and make our abode with him. He that loveth me not, keepeth not my sayings, and the word which he hear is not mine, but the Father's which sent me. These things have I spoken unto you, being yet present with you. But the Comforter, which is the Holy Ghost, whom the Father will send in my name, he shall teach you all things, and bring all things to your remembrance, whatsoever I have said unto you. Peace I leave with you, my peace I give unto you, not as the world giveth give I unto you. Let not your heart be troubled, neither let it be afraid. You have heard how I said unto you, I go away and come again unto you. If ye loved me, ye would rejoice, because I said, I go unto the Father, for my Father is greater than I." And now I have told you before it come to pass that, when it has come to pass, you might believe. Hereafter I will not talk much with you, for the prince of this world cometh and hath nothing in me. But that the world may know that I love the Father, and as the Father gave me commandment, even so I do. Arise, let us go hence. In these verses, Jesus begins to introduce life after he's gone. By the power of the Holy Spirit, they, and we, as a matter of fact, will be comforted and empowered by praying in His name. Jesus calls the Holy Spirit the Comforter here in verse 16. That Greek word for comforter is parakletos, used only by Jesus in John chapter 14, verses 16 and 26, and then John chapter 15, verse 26, and then again in John chapter 16, verse 7. And then it's used once by John himself in 1 John chapter 2, verse 1, where it's translated advocate in the King James Version. The indwelling of the Holy Spirit in believers introduced by Jesus here is a foundational principle of life in Christ for all those who trust Jesus as their personal Savior. That's where the power for the Christian life, to be able to live a separated life, comes in. And that's where it comes from. Without the dwelling of the Holy Spirit, salvation would be an empty proposition. However, with the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, we have an ever-abiding partner who serves as our counselor and advocate, and he's always on the clock. To demonstrate that the disciples are still attempting to comprehend what seems like a strange change of plans to them, Judas, the the good one, not Iscariot, he asks a pointed question in verse 22. He's obviously been thinking in terms of the establishment of an earthly kingdom up to this point as well. He then asked this question, Lord, how is it that thou wilt manifest thyself unto us and not unto the world? Well, that's in response to Jesus' guarantee of individual manifestation in verse 21. Judas obviously was thinking, if Jesus is the Messiah over a worldwide kingdom, then How is it that he'll only selectively be manifested to certain individuals? However, Jesus is now talking about the very process of individual salvation and not an earthly kingdom here. Moreover, Jesus introduces to them the clear understanding that the prince of this world, being Satan, is coming. So who's going to put this whole thing into perspective? Jesus answers that question as well in verse 26. Here's what he says, "...but the Comforter, which is the Holy Ghost, whom the Father will send in my name, he shall teach you all things and bring all things to your remembrance, whatsoever I have said unto you." The ministry of the Holy Spirit is to provide the direction of Jesus in every believer. Life after salvation is differentiated and defined by the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit in every believer." Jesus makes a reference to Satan himself in verse 30 when he says, For the prince of this world cometh and hath nothing in me. Paul puts this prince reference into perspective in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 2, where he says, Wherein in time past you walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that now worketh in the children of disobedience. In both passages, the Greek word archon there, is translated Prince. Paul also identifies Satan in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 4, when he says, The God of this world hath blinded the minds of them which believe not. Satan hoped that the crucifixion would solve all of his problems. But the resurrection three days later had to be very disappointing to him. While Satan is not omniscient, he should have known what was up by Jesus' own words in John chapter 12, verses 31 through 33. Here's what he said back then. Now is the judgment of this world. Now shall the prince of this world be cast out. And I, if I be lifted up from the earth, will draw all men unto me. This, he said, signifying what death he should die. So here's what I'm saying. Satan should have heard that quote from Jesus and he should have realized that Jesus had to go to the cross and therein would lie the victory for every believer in the future. This concludes our podcast for today. I'm Wayne Turner, and if you'd like to read along with our commentary online, go to www.bibletrib.org. Thank you for listening in today. The background music for these podcasts is an original composition written by the music director of Faith Bible Church, Paul Walker.